Our scripture lesson tonight comes from uh, really one of the great chapters in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Let's share in God's good word together. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. What is your what if? That's the sermon title tonight. What if? What is your God-ordained passion? What is that thing that if God were to get involved that you would just love to go do that thing? What if? What if God was involved in your life? What if God lived in you? What if on this April 15th, what if paying your taxes was a joy? What if your taxes were a joy because you have a job and a government that provides roads and schools and clean water and garbage collection, police, fire, and this year even trim tree limb removal? What if you were truly thankful about paying your taxes this year? What if growing older made you happier, not grumpier? What if? What if you decided to treat your friends and family as great gifts to be treasured and enjoyed? What if? What if you stopped letting fear rob you of your life? What if? What if you knew you could not fail? What would you do? What if time or money was no longer an obstacle? What God thing would you go after? What would you live out? What if the Bible is true and God really lives and dwells in you? God does. God does. If you have your sermon notes, I want to invite you to take them out. We're going to um, look back over the last two weeks very, very quickly um, as they set up this week. Um, Two weeks ago, Pastor Andy shared with us uh, a sermon about if only, um, sort of our regrets. And and the, the basic premise of that sermon was this, that your greatest regret won't be the things that you did but wish you hadn't. Your greatest regret will be the things you didn't do but wish you had. Will you say that with me? Your greatest regret won't be the things you did but wish you hadn't. Your greatest regret will be the things you didn't do but wish you had. Now, if you're a 10-year-old boy, that's probably not true for you yet. right? Your greatest regrets are the things mom and dad said not to do and you did them anyway. That, that's probably true. But for those of us, as we get closer and closer to the end of our life, uh, we're going to know that we make mistakes that's no big deal. The older you get, of course we're going to make mistakes. We, we understand that. That's just part of life. But yet there are those moments where, oh, if I had just you know, followed through on, on my intuition or followed through on that opportunity or, or said yes to that offer or offered forgiveness in this relationship or offered kindness uh, at this time. These things that I knew that I really was called to do and I just didn't do them. Those are the things that I find people at the end of their life, they really struggle with. And so that doesn't have to be the case. We have a young congregation here and so we can live into all the things that God has for us because God lives in us. And that leads us to week two, last week, which was to live as if. Live as if the Spirit lives in you because He does, or she does, God does. Uh, The Spirit, Christ lives in you. So live as if that's true because it changes everything. What if you were to live starting tonight as if God was fully present in you and you were becoming more and more like God? Um, One of the ways, one of the writers uh, wrote about it this week that I just love is that all of us in the Christian faith and life are the little brothers and little sisters of Jesus. 
We really are. We're the siblings of Jesus. Because if Jesus lives in us, if the Spirit lives in us, then we are Christ's family. He calls us family. Children, heirs, we're a part of the family of God. So instead of just being you, think of you as being like, oh yeah, Jesus is my big brother. Awesome. Right? And you live as a part of the family of faith. You have the same power that Jesus had because he lives in you. The Spirit lives in you. And so now you can live differently because the very power of God dwells in you. This is great news. So that leads us to this week, which is, what if God is really for me? What if God is really for me? Do you know that? I think that's the crux of most of the world's problems, is that we can forget that God is for us. God is absolutely for us, not against you. God is not punishing you. God is not out to get you. God is not hurting you. God is not manipulating the world so that you're going to have a bad day. God is for you. And that's so important that you remember that. Because some days are beating. Some days it feels like God is absolutely out to get you. It feels like God is punishing you for something. And the scriptures make it very clear that that's not the case. That God is for us. That God loves us. And there's nothing we can do about it. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about that. God is always for you. Well, if that's the case, well, what then? How are we to live? If God would love us so much that he would give his only son and that his son in under obedience would go all the way to the cross so that you might know without a doubt that you are completely and perfectly loved, not, not by a mere mortal love that can come and go, but by a perfect love that's everlasting, how do you live? How are we then to live? And Paul begins to answer that question in Romans chapter 8. And so in Romans 8 verse 18... The Christian life, um, if, if we're honest about it, involves suffering. So Paul writes this. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, because it comes to all of us, are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. That we live uh, with a God who was and is and is to come. Will you say that with me? We have a God who was and is and is to come. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit about our salvation because we have a God who was and is and is to come. Our relationship with God is based in the past, in the present, and in the future. It covers all time. Salvation is eternal, which goes backwards, is here today, and goes forwards. And so what Paul is saying is, look, you're part of something much bigger than you can imagine much greater than you can imagine. God is so much bigger and greater than you can imagine. So don't worry about today. Are you having a rough day today? Yes, maybe so. But it's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in our full life, on all of eternity. It is just a blink of an eye. Whatever we're going through today is just a blink of an eye with what God has for us. And so one of the things that we begin to struggle with is this reality that the Christian life involves suffering. It does. It does. It did for Jesus. Jesus, uh, did he have any sin in his life? No. He was perfect in every way, yet he suffered, and he suffered all the way to death on a cross. And so we should not be surprised uh, or be offended or be downtrodden when our life, too, includes suffering. Now, I know that we're pain-averse. I know particularly in the American church we are very suffering-averse. We don't like that. But we have to wrestle with these scriptures where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, have a nice day at 70 degrees with the wind at your back and, you know, butterflies every day and follow me. That's not what he says. He says, pick up your cross and follow me, and that involves suffering. That includes our effort. And so part of our Christian life is hard. Now, it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It is suffering for the transformation of the world. So Paul continues to write about this in verses 22 and 23. He says, we know that the whole creation, all of it, has been groaning in labor pains until now. So it's not just you or me that might have a bad day or suffer. It's all of creation. Every tree, 
uh, every stone, uh, every bird, all of it, all of us together are under sin. We are not living in a perfect heaven yet. And so all of this groans for God to redeem it, not to replace it, but to redeem it. We're on a disease model where things are sick and God is here to heal us and we're getting closer and closer to his image. That should be true for all of creation as well as for our own lives. And you and I are stewards of that creation. We all do this together. So all of creation groans and labor pains until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, for God to make us whole, for salvation to come to completeness and the redemption of our bodies. Again, not just a complete replacement of our bodies, but a redemption to where we look more and more like Jesus, where we're able to do the things that Jesus did, that we love like he loved, we're kind, where before we were hateful or hurtful, we're able to forgive, where before we harbored grudges. And so Paul basically says this, and as a guy, this is very disturbing to me, but Paul says that I'm pregnant. That's what he says in Romans, that I'm pregnant and that you're pregnant. If you follow Jesus, that you are pregnant with the very spirit of God. And, and, and in many ways, that's beautiful. In other ways, it's very uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. Now, that's, that's really pretty, right? I mean, that's, that's lovely. We, we know that there's a, a wonderful little child growing inside of her. But then there's that moment where that child has to come out. And it looks more like that. Now, is this groaning good or bad? Yes, it, it is. It leads to something beautiful and wonderful. And this is the imagery that Paul brings out for us, that all of us, all of creation, every person on the planet are pregnant with the very Spirit of God. And as the Spirit grows in us, other people should be able to tell. They should be like, oh, you're eight months pregnant with Jesus, you know, or with the Spirit. You're growing. You look more like Him. It looks like you're doing, that God's doing something in you. And, and the more you know the things of God, the more you're able to see this. And then there's a moment where it's to give full birth to something life, new life. Uh, and, and it's a beautiful metaphor if you think about it. It's painful. Uh, and it, it can be hurtful, but it's also beautiful all at the same time. And that's the way the realities of the Christian life are, that we're pregnant. And in this time of pregnancy, we are to be patient, but this patience is an active patient. So those of you who have been pregnant, you know that there's a lot included to that, right? Many of you took prenatal vitamins, um, or you got extra rest, or you had crackers by your bed if you had nausea. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go with the season of pregnancy, uh, that I will tell you clearly, I'm a guy, I'd have no clue about what any of it is. So don't be mad at me. I just, you know, I don't know. But I've seen other people go through it. Uh, and now we have a little Noah sitting on the front row. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful and wonderful. And those of you who've gone through this, you, you understand this. So this is what Paul's saying. That the Christian life is like being pregnant. And that we are all pregnant with the Spirit. And so he continues the analogy in this way. He says, for in hope we were saved. Is that present, future, or past tense? Thank you, English people. Yes, past tense. We were saved. Okay, so you have a part of your salvation that happened in the past. When Jesus walked the earth and, and, and brought life and health and peace and healing and teaching and to the cross nailed sin and death on the cross, that was back a chapter in chapter 7, where he defeated sin and death, you were saved at that time. But there's going to be more. It's not just in the past. He says, so now hope that is seen is not hope. Right? So if you're hoping about something and you can already see it, that, you don't have to hope about that anymore, do you? I mean, that's silly. It's like, well, there it is. I don't have to hope. So the very concept of hope requires that you don't see it yet. That you're pregnant with something that God's doing, but it's not in fullness. And so we, we hope in our future that God has. For who hopes for what is seen? Well, nobody. That's silly. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? Patience. 
like in a pregnancy. You have a due date, and you look forward to it, and, and you have the nursery, and you, you paint the walls, and you, you get the crib ready, and you get the stroller ready, and you get the diapers. And if you have siblings, you try to get the siblings ready, and all that. And in, in all of this, therefore, in this time of pregnancy, we are to be two things, patient and what else? Prayerful. And both of these are active. So as God does something new in us, we are to be patient with whatever God wants to bring to bear uh, in an active, patiently waiting. But, but again, that's not doing nothing. So again, if you're pregnant with a, a little one inside of you, uh, that might include a walking regimen. Uh, when we were having John Mark, that included a particular kind of diet uh, that we needed to be on as a family. And if you, any of you have had gestational diabetes, you know that the whole family's on the diet. It's not just one person. You do that together. And, and so we, we went through that. And, and so we were patient, and we were active in our patience, but we were also prayerful. Okay, God, what do you want to do with this? How are we to live? What are we to do next? Uh, what are we to do after that? So we're patient and prayerful in this expectation of God growing in us. So Paul continues. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we're not doing this alone. We're not just gutting it out in our own strength. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. So, so Paul says you're to pray, but then he recognizes that at least for the early church in Rome, they didn't even know how to do that. Okay, these are, these are people really close uh, to Jesus, has only been dead uh, maybe 20 years at this point. And so this is, this is early teaching in the faith. And he says, so you're supposed to pray, but what if we don't know how we pray? He says, don't worry about that. Because the very Spirit of God, the Spirit that Jesus promised when he ascended and came to the church in the book of Acts chapter 2, that very Spirit, the same Spirit of Jesus, the risen Jesus, the same Spirit of God, intercedes, comes to us, lives in us with sighs too deep for words. So if you're in that place, uh, and if, you know, if you're past your 20s, you've been there. There comes a day in every person's life where what you're going through is just beyond your vocabulary. Right? I mean, there's certain things that happen that are just beyond words. And, and this, the Greek and intercedes is tricky. Because for those of us uh, in the West, we would kind of read it as somebody who kind of takes your place and does it for you. That's not what this means. It means that, that the Spirit actually comes and dwells in you in such a way that the Spirit does it alongside you, with you, um, in, in your own self. And so you've got a part to play, and the Spirit has a part to play, but your, even your ability to pray is a gift of God uh, through the Spirit. And, and Paul writes, with sighs too deep for words. So if you don't even know how to pray, don't worry about it, because the Spirit is living inside of you and praying for you until the words come, or even if the words don't ever come. And God then, who searches the heart, God knows your heart, and knows what is the mind of the Spirit living in you, because the Spirit intercedes, is inside of you, working for you, for the saints, according to the will of God. Because God is what? For you. So even your ability to say yes to Jesus is a gift of the Spirit. Your ability to pray to Jesus, to pray to God, is a gift of the Spirit. And all of this is a part of God's will for you. God's will for you. So it is all of God working for you and around you. And so if you're, if you're following along, we have a part to play. Uh, it is, is much like um, power steering, if you will. Okay? And so in, in your car, anybody here have power steering? You all better have power steering at this point. So when you steer your car with power steering, are you steering or is the car steering? Yes. Yes. Now, I grew up on a 62 Chevy 2 with no power steering. And I'm telling you, it is not easy. It's much easier to, to steer with power steering. But that's the way it is with the Spirit. This is what Paul is saying, that we have a part to play, but of course you're steering the car, but you're not steering it alone. 
What, what makes it doable, what makes it easier, what makes it possible is the very Spirit of God living in you. It's like power sharing. It's power sharing, really, is what it is. And so we still have a part to play with this. So we're at point three. And this is where it gets really tricky because people have struggled with this scripture for thousands of years and will perhaps struggle with it again tonight. And that is that the scripture, depending on which translation you use, says that all things work together for God for good for those who love God. But, but the problem is, uh, as you try to translate the Greek, it, it's not explicit on what the subject is. And, and friends, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm sold out that all things is not the subject. What has Paul been talking about this whole time? God and the Spirit living in you. So I think the best translation is this, that we know that God uh, works all things together for good. It's God is the subject, and God is the one that takes everything in your life, and he works it for good for those who love him. Right? That's, that's what's going on. It's not that all things are good. That's silly. We know that not all things are good. God is good. How often? All the time. And all the time, God is good. So, because of the character of God, God then works all things together for good for those who love God. Now, you may not be able to see it today. You may not even be able to see it in your lifetime. But again, Paul is telling us that whatever you're going through today, whatever misery, whatever suffering, whatever hardship you're going through, it is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us at the end of time, either when Jesus comes back to the world and makes all things right or when we go to him, whichever comes first. Now, when we get into that space where we actually see eternity for what it is and how it is and how beautiful it is, we won't worry about the the temporary suffering that we've been going through. And so it's the same God who works all things. Every job that you've ever lost, every pain that you've ever had, every relationship that's gone bad, God has been working all of that so that ultimately, ultimately, you will be found for that to have worked somehow miraculously for your good. Now, in small snippets and small metaphors, you'll know this to be true in your own life. Uh, You know, uh, country songs will say, you know, I thank God for unanswered prayers. It's that sort of a thing. And you can look back on your life where you didn't get this job or this thing didn't work out and you're pretty thankful for it. Um, you know, if, if you dated much at all in your junior high days, for most of us, uh, Nelms excluded, um, we're really happy that we didn't marry the first person we dated. Right? Amen? I mean, you remember your first date? You're like, woo, dodged a bullet. And, and so um, that's how it is for most of us. There's very few people marry their first love, the very first person that they've ever gone out with. Some of you do. That's good. I'm not knocking that. But God takes all of that and works it for our good, who are called according to his purpose. So then we're left with this question. Do you love God? That's the question. Because God has already said that he loves you and he's for you. So if you love God, then what happens? God then takes everything in your life, every bit of it, and he turns it for good, for you, because he loves you. Even if you can't see it, even if you can't claim it, even if you don't know how that's going to end, our faith, our belief, our hope that is not yet seen is that God loves us and that God is taking all things and working them all for our good. Romans 28, 8, 28. So if God is for us, right, who is against us? Romans 8, 31 says this. What then are we to say about all these things? Because we know suffering is real. Many of us are going through suffering. Um, but God lives in us. What are we to do with that? He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, what's the answer? No one. Nothing. Nothing. If God is for us, then nobody can be against us. Because God is the greatest. God is good. And so here's the thing. Paul is writing as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He knew everything about the law, top to bottom. 
right? And so as a Pharisee, he's writing as a radically Jewish monotheist, which means he sold out for one God. Now, this wasn't true for the rest of his culture. Uh, the, the other people that would live around him in the time of Rome, uh, if you study mythology at all, there's lots of Roman gods, but not for Paul. So Paul says there's one God, Jesus is him, and so if you follow Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you love God, then all these things are going to work for good for you. Because he's talking about that one God. And if so if God is for us, then who's against us? Nothing can stand against us. And, so, and then, because he's Jewish, he goes on because who's the very head, uh, the greatest person that they could think of who started Judaism? Abraham, right? So it's Abraham, and you come to Genesis where there's the sacrifice of Isaac. And Paul says, no, 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 this is even greater than that. So in Romans 8, 32, he says this, God who did not withhold his own son, because Abraham did, Isaac was spared. And so he says, this is even greater than that, because God did not even withhold his own son. He gave him up for all of us. Will he not also with him give us everything else? This one God who is so great, greater than everything else, will he not also do for you? Because he loves you. He's for you. He says, and if this is the case, then who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So that spirit that we're talking about that lives in you is actually Jesus. Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, God himself, lives in you, and that should change the world. And so this salvation that was in Jesus is present with you in the Holy Spirit and will be complete in the future is a salvation that is past and present and future. And so it's important how you live into it today because your present salvation and what you do with that influences your future salvation and how that goes. Just in the same way what Jesus has done for you in the past influences your ability to be here tonight. Because if Jesus hadn't died on the cross, you wouldn't be here tonight, right? So your salvation in the past influences your salvation in the present, which then influences your salvation in the future. I know for a few of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard of salvation and that concept. I'm happy to talk to you about it later. It's okay. For some people, this kind of blows their mind like, what? Your salvation is at hand, and we are in the process of being saved. It's something that we do with God. It's power steering, it's power sharing, and God gives us the power to live differently for the transformation of the world, to redeem all that is groaning, not only our own situation, but our neighbor's situation, the situation in Turkey, the situation in Honduras, the situation in Africa, the situation all around the world. All of that is groaning to be redeemed by God, not tossed aside as rubbish, but as something important that God wants to create back into his image. And you and I are to have a piece to play in that. Salvation is past and present and future and at hand in the current moment. So Paul asks a really good question. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? If this is all true, he's writing this as a, as a, you know, a theological law argument. If this is all the case, well, who's going to do it then? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of it. None of it can separate us from the love of God. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. Now, if you were in first century Rome, absolutely true for you. That is why um, in the Catholic Church, even today, uh, there's a part in the liturgy uh, in the Orthodox Church where they say, close the doors, close the doors, because they would not want anybody outside the faith to know what happens around communion. Because to take communion in the first century was a death sentence. Anybody that could name names of the people who did communion meant that they were Christians and they would be killed the next morning. They, they would name names and they'd go and they'd search them out uh, and they would saw them in two in the public square. We, we know this from the writings, both Christian writings, Jewish writings, people like Josephus and even Roman writings. And so this was a very important thing that, that Paul understood. He's like, look, I know you're being killed. I know you're suffering. 
And, and we're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. He, he was fully aware of this. It was a difficult and dangerous situation to be a Christian in the first century. It was difficult and dangerous. And it's becoming more and more difficult and more and more dangerous in certain parts of the world. And, and we, we just need to understand that we need to be praying uh, for the Christian martyrs today, for the people that are in danger because of their faith. Uh, there are places where that's still true today, all around the world. And Paul says, even though this is true, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because Christ lives in us, because Jesus lives in us, because the Spirit dwells in us, we can live differently. We don't have to be afraid of death any longer. We are free to live for him. Because in Jesus, our future is what, friends? Secure. You don't have to worry about your future anymore. Because Christ lives in you. He died for you on the cross, which secured your salvation from the past. He is with you today and empowers you to live differently. So your salvation is secure today. And your future is secure in the future as you accept it. Because Christ is with you and is coming back to make all things new and right. And we are to part, have a part to play in that. In our own lives and the lives around us. And so then we come to what I think might be uh, some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. He says this in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, death which was very real and happening all around him, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, uh, real rulers like, like Rome and, and the Roman government that was killing their people, not rulers nor things present nor things to come in the future, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me ask you, what can separate you from the love of God? What's the answer? Nothing. Isn't that great news? That should, I mean, you should be like jumping up and down like whoop, whoop, whoop. That is awesome. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not a thing. Not one thing. Now, my hunch is, though, that some of you don't believe that. That, that something has happened in your life, something horrible to you or something that you've done to someone else, and you just sort of assume that, it doesn't, that whatever your deal is isn't included on the list. Right? Well, that's Paul's list, but he doesn't know my thing. Friends, that list is meant to be all-inclusive. It's, it's supposed to include everything that you could possibly think of. When he says everything above heaven or under the earth or all around, or rulers or principalities, that includes you. And so this is great, great news. So we're left with this question of what if we began to live as if these things were true? What if you stopped letting fear dictate your decisions? That you actually lived into the future that God has for you. You, you no longer listened to the people who were doubting you or they're saying that it's not possible. What if you stopped letting fear dictate your decisions? What if the circumstances that you're asking God to change at this very moment are the very circumstances God is using to change you? You ever think of that? Think, oh, God, get me out of this. That's the wrong prayer. You know what this is the right prayer? Oh, God, get into this. That's the prayer. Right? Not get me out of this, but get into this. If you're a part of this, Lord, then show me what you're doing and help me respond. What if the circumstances you're asking God to change are the very circumstances God is using to change you right now? And this might be my favorite. Uh, Mark Batterson, uh, in his book, If, uh, wrote this. And I, I think he's uh, right. And so I, I invite you to, to tweet a version of this out. He says, what if we became known more for what we're for than what we're against? If you follow Facebook at all, you, I mean, there's critics everywhere. Everywhere. Um, and, and quite frankly, 
uh, as a pastor of a church that worships somewhere between 500 people on one weekend and 1,300 at Easter, um, I know this in real ways. You know, to, to come up here and preach each week or uh, to lead the church in a certain way, it is easy as pie for people to critique whatever we do as a church, whatever I say, whatever mission we choose to do or not to do. Uh, I mean, I've, I've got hundreds if not thousands of critics. And I got to tell you, it's exhausting. I mean, it really is. like, whew. You know, but, but, if there's something that you see that needs working and you come to me with a plan, I will be all about it. Don't come to me without a plan. Right? Because anybody can critique. Anybody can be a critic. Anybody can sit in their chair and like, oh, I do that differently. Oh, yeah, we'll try it. Right? I mean, I would be the best quarterback in the NFL in my own mind. I could never do that. Right? And so we, we need to be really careful about what we critique. I, I feel so horrible for young parents with little kids. Uh, because every parent who has older kids think that they know how to parent that child. As if all children were the same. Right? And if, and if you've been on the receiving end of that, oh, well, you know, just do this and it'll be great. You know how infuriating that is. Anybody can be a critic. But it takes someone with some real passion and with Christ living in them to be creative, to come up with solutions, to come up with plans, to actually roll up their sleeves and, and get in the business of changing the world. And wouldn't it be great if that's how you were known? Oh, that's the person that helped change that. That's the person that made my life different here. That's the person that transformed that neighborhood, that community, that situation. That's that church. So as your action step, friends, let me ask you this. What is your what if? I think everybody here has one. We may not have it all fleshed out, but I want to ask you, what's your what if? What's your God-sized dream? That if God got involved in it, what would you do? And then ask yourself this, okay, uh, well, what would God need to do? What's, what's God's part to play? And then if you haven't started anything at all, say, well, what's the first step that I'm going to take? What's the first thing that I think God would want me to do with that? And, and for those of us who are sort of in the middle of something, uh, then we need to ask this question. Well, okay, Lord, what's the next step? Because we know you're good. We know you love us. We know that our salvation is at hand. And that you're for us. So what are you waiting for, church? What if we lived out the very life of God. In the first century, in the temples, they would put images of Caesar all around the temple. They would put Caesar on all their coins and on all their money so that wherever they went, anywhere in the Roman Empire, people would know that they were surrounded by and under the authority of Caesar. What if you let Jesus live in you and every other Christian that we know started to let Jesus live in them. So that by the end of our lifetime, everywhere the world went, every time they looked around them, every time they saw someone anywhere in the world, they saw Jesus. And they would be reminded and comforted and overjoyed by the fact that they live under his authority and power and loving control. Wouldn't that be awesome? The kingdom would have come to earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.